Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zerapath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zerapath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And then she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a cruise. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal shall not be spent, and the cruise of oil shall not fail, until the day that the Lord reigns upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I think in college, when I was an undergrad, I was uh, probably like most other college students in that I didn't really have a lot of money. I worked different jobs to be able to help pay for school and to pay for other expenses. I was a lab assistant. I worked at a grocery store. And on weekends, I helped out at a nursing home. The time came that I wanted to move out of the dorm but the most rent that I could afford was on this tiny, run-down trailer. I'm not sure that it was livable, looking back. There were lots of holes in the ceiling, and the floor was kind of unstable. And it had a brown shag carpet that had been worn flat. And yet I was really proud of it because it represented my independence It was during that time that my grandmother and her friend came for a visit. Now, they were both uh, traveling together because they were kind of in their own struggles. My grandfather had been rapidly developing the symptoms of Alzheimer's, and my grandmother's friend had recently lost her husband. And so both were feeling loneliness in their lives, and, and I think they had fun uh, traveling together and they could sympathize with each other. When they came to visit me, they stayed at a hotel in town. My trailer was really tiny, and I didn't have room for them. But uh, truth be told, I think they were scared of it. Um, But I did everything I could to really treat them well. I splurged all the money I had, and I made meals for them, and I took them around to see the sights. And we just had a wonderful time together. About a week and a half after they left, I received a thank you note in the mail from my grandmother's friend, and in it, she had included a $10 bill. Now, $10 may not seem like much nowadays, but I can tell you to a poor college student, it made a huge difference. It meant a lot to me, and especially because I knew this woman's situation, She was a widow on a very small fixed income, 
and I knew that this was a sacrifice for her. She had done what she could, she had given what she could, and it made a difference to me. It mattered. This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, What You Do Matters. Dr. Long started this sermon series last week, and he shared with us that the title comes from a sign that we saw at the National Holocaust Museum. Dr. Long, Reverend Phil Greenwald, Reverend Josh Attaway, and myself went to Washington, D.C. to the Museum of the Bible because we wanted to meet with leaders there to start planning trips for St. Luke's to make to Washington, D.C., to have an educational experience and delve deeper into the Bible. And we wanted to visit other locations in Washington, D.C. to coordinate those in our upcoming trips. One of those was the National Holocaust Museum. And as you walk into that space... Just as Dr. Long shared last week, it's this huge, open, light-filled place. It's like this beautiful brick courtyard. But as you stand there and start to look around, it's almost as if you are on the outside of all these brick buildings, kind of a bystander. Well, then you enter into the buildings for where the exhibits are located, And as you pass through and see all of these exhibits, you start to see subtle changes in the architecture, changes that remind you of passing through a train station. And then you walk through an actual railroad car that transported prisoners to the concentration camps. And then you are able to see this sign that's in German, but it translates to mean Work sets you free. These were the words, the signs at the gates of Auschwitz and Buchenwald and other concentration camps that the prisoners would walk under as they entered in. Finally, after you've seen the exhibits, it winds you back around to the very place where you started. And suddenly you're on the outside again. And you see the sign that says... What you do matters. It was a really powerful moment for me. There in that moment, I was reminded that God did not create us to be bystanders. God created us to be a part of life, to do what we can to make a difference. We are given gifts that we can share with the world that can bring comfort, that can be about justice, that can offer peace and bring joy. What we do matters. This morning's scripture passage comes from the Old Testament book of First Kings in the 17th chapter. And it's the very first time that we're introduced to the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah is sent to speak to the leader of Israel, King Ahab. Ahab was a notorious king. He was evil, and all the more so because of his wife, Queen Jezebel. Jezebel came from the land of Sidon, and she was a a priestess of the Baal fertility cult. She was a priestess of Baal, and she brought all of the terrible practices of this cult and all of her priests there and imposed them on the people of Israel. 
Elijah was sent to Ahab to warn him that there would be a terrible drought in the land until they ended the worship of this cult. And then the word of God came to Elijah and told him to go out into the country. And there he would be provided for by ravens. They would bring him food every day and he could drink water from a nearby stream. Eventually, the water in the stream dried up because of the drought. And so the word of God came to Elijah again and told him to go to a town called Zarephath. And it was in the region of Sidon. And there he would find a widow who would provide for him. God said that he had already commanded this widow to take care of Elijah's needs. And so when Elijah gets to the gates of the city, he sees this widow gathering up sticks, and he asks her for a drink of water, which she provides to him. And then he asks her to fix him a small loaf of bread. And she tells him that she is gathering wood to make a fire. And on that fire, she is going to use up the last of her food resources. And she said, we... After we eat that, we have nothing to do but starve. And Elijah told her, if you will make this for me, make the first cake for me, and I promise you by the word of the Lord of Israel that the oil that you have and the flour will not run out until the, the drought is over. And so she goes inside and brings him back a loaf of bread. She gave him everything she had. And what's interesting about this passage is that God had told Elijah that he had commanded her to feed Elijah, to provide for him. And yet when Elijah arrives, she's there preparing to cook the food for herself. And yet I think this is understandable when you remember where she lives. She lives in Sidon, where Jezebel is from. Jezebel was a high priestess of Baal. It was a fertility cult. And she was the daughter of the king of that land. His name was Eth Baal, which means with Baal. And her name, many scholars believe, is a derivative of Jezbaal, meaning daughter of Baal. And so this land was rich in the the cultic practices of this terrible tradition. Baal was a vengeful and violent god, often portrayed in idols and statues as holding a thunderbolt in his hand. And so this widow would not have understood the word of God coming to her because she understood Baal to be violent and mean and not personal. If he ever spoke to someone, it was someone of power and and greatness. Surely he wouldn't speak to someone that was destitute and one of the lowest rungs on the social ladder. It's understandable that she did not recognize the voice of God in her life. And yet when Elijah asked her for that last piece of bread, she provides it to him. She gave everything And what she did matters. All of us have three things that we can give to make a difference in life. We all have the ability to give our money and resources. 
to be sure, we all have different um, abilities on what we're able to give. We also have the ability to give our time and effort. And though, again, that differs from person to person, what that looks like. But we also have the ability to give our lives and share them with the world. This morning, I want to ask three questions and discuss them in order to help us give what we can to make differences in this world, big and small, that can help us to make change. First, are we willing to give our money and resources? Elijah asked the widow for the last remaining thing that she owned. And it kind of seems a little cruel for him to go to her. I mean, can you imagine everything she's gone through? Her husband died, and she has no means of support, but she has to provide for her son. And now this man of God shows up and wants the last remaining food that she has. Her husband dies. There's a terrible drought. There's an ensuing famine And now this prophet wants her last meal before she dies. But Elijah promised her oil and her flour would not run out because God had spoken it. And she trusted in a God she didn't yet know. She gave everything in order to make a difference. I think that God asked this widow not just for Elijah's sake, but for her sake. She was now involved in the ministry of God, not just to Elijah, but because she was able to care for Elijah, she saw the work of God. Now, it's ironic because in Israel, the most powerful, the most wealthy woman in that country, Queen Jezebel, was preaching about Baal, and yet in her homeland, the least powerful, the One of the most destitute women in the land would soon go on to proclaim the word of the living God. More importantly, perhaps for her, I think God wanted her to see that her life mattered. If you remembered, she had no hope left. She was so helpless that she thought the only thing she could do was die. And God wanted her to see that she could make an impact in the world. What are the ways that we can give to make a difference? Thankfully, most of us will never find ourselves in a situation like the widow of Sidon, but all of us are able to give. We might not feel like we can give in big ways, but we can give in ways that are big to us. And God will bless our efforts and use them to accomplish great things in the lives of others. God honors our efforts and will use them to make a difference. Recently, this was shown to me in the life of, uh, lives of some of our friends. My husband and I have dear friends who are avid runners. Uh, they live near us with their small children, and I really admire and respect the choices in the way they live their lives. They've chosen to live with a certain budget, only spending certain amount on their own lives so that they are able to spend money on other things to make a difference in the world. They 
support the ministries of their church. They coach a youth team and they host a youth Bible study in their week, uh, in their house every week, among many other things they do. This is a couple that gives their money, their time, and their lives to impact people around them. Well, about a year and a half ago, I started jogging, though for full disclosure and confession, I started jogging with a whole lot of walking mixed in. But after about a month and a half of that, I started having this heel pain right around my Achilles tendon, and it was inflamed. And so I tried everything. I iced it. I wrapped it. I elevated it, and nothing seemed to work. I tried resting for about a week or so, but as soon as I started running again, uh, the pain returned, and I could never get the swelling to go down, no matter the exercises, the stretching, whatever I did. And so I finally asked our friends if they had any suggestions for anything I could do differently. And the husband asked to look at my shoes. And when he picked them up, he started laughing. Now, you need to understand that I have no problem buying church shoes. I think it's a good investment for me to buy shoes that I can wear at work. But I thought it was frivolous to buy running shoes. And so I didn't. The shoes I was running in were a pair of my daughter Hannah's old shoes that she no longer wore. They were a little snug on my feet, but my toes didn't hurt, and the sole was intact, and so I thought they were just fine. But he pointed out to me that not only were there parts in the upper portion of the shoe that were separating, but there was a large hole in the back of my shoe in the interior lining right where my Achilles tendon met my ankle bone. Now, I'm embarrassed to remind you that I used to be a physical therapist, and I should have known how important shoes are to running, and yet I forgot how important sometimes the little things are. Well, then he and his wife told me that they had a credit for a free pair of running shoes at a local running store, and they wanted to give them to me. And they said if I went to this running store, the staff was great. They would make sure I found the right shoes and got the right fit, and they wanted me to have them. And I thanked them for their advice, and I thanked them for the offer of the free shoes, but I told them, you know, that's fine. I'll, be f- I'll buy them. I'm going to go to the running store, but, you know, I don't want you guys to use your store credit on me. And they insisted, and so I didn't say anything more. Later that week, I went to the running store, and sure enough, the staff was great. They helped me find the absolute right shoe for me and made sure I got one that fit. And, of course, I didn't tell them about the free shoe credit. I went up to the cash register to pay, and the clerk told me that my shoes were free because my friends had called in advance to make sure the store was ready for me. Now, I have to tell you, the gift of the shoes has been wonderful. Um, I haven't had any problems ever since getting these new shoes. A small thing like good shoes really does make a difference. But the better gift for me was the lesson I learned about giving. You see, my friends run all the time, every day. They compete in races. They do training Absolutely, they would have been able to use that store credit for shoes for themselves. 
but they chose to give them away to someone they saw in need at that moment. There are many times in my life when I tend to hold on to things or money because of needing it sometime in the future. I think I might need it. I might use this. And so I hold on to it instead of using it in that moment to bless the life of someone in need now. What are the things that we have that could be used here and now to bless life, to make a difference for someone? Are we willing to give our money and our resources? Second, are we willing to give our time and effort? When Elijah went to the widow of Sidon, He asked her for her last bit of food, but the scripture continues. Her story goes on to say that, of course, the oil and the flour did not run out, just as God had said, and it continued until the drought ended. And the scripture tells us she was able to provide for herself, her son, and Elijah during all that time. She took care of her household and the prophet Elijah during all that the time that the drought was going on. She gave all of her resources and she gave her time and effort. Now, what's the biggest reason that we don't give more of our time to help? It's because we're so busy. And yet, just as there are things that we hold on to, things that we don't really need, there's also things in our schedule that we don't really need to be doing. If you are someone who never says no to anyone or anything, how can you say yes to something that really needs your time? If you are someone that fills your schedule to the brink, how will you have the energy to give effort to someone in need? What would it be like if we gave our time and effort When's the last time you analyzed how you spend time in your life? What are the things that you really don't need to be doing? One of the ways to take stock of that is to look at where you spend your time and then ask yourself the question, if it were your last day, would you wish that you had done more of this? For example, when I clean and do things around the house, a lot of times I have a TV series that I'm binge watching on Netflix just going on in the background continuously. When it comes to the last day of my life, I'm pretty sure I won't be wishing that I, ha- I would have watched more television. What are the ways that we can free up our schedule so that we are refreshed and have the energy and the time to do the things that matter? What would our hard work accomplish in this world? This past week, many of you probably saw that the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees, uh, broke the record for all-time passing yards. The record was previously held by Peyton Manning, but now Drew Brees has passed for over 72,000 yards in his football career. Now, that's amazing. But even more so because he did that in 12 fewer games than Manning. 
and there are other records that he's set to break, and he's still playing. It was incredible. When he finished and completed that 62-yard pass to break the record, the officials stopped the game to honor him and so that he could celebrate with his teammates and his family. And then they started the game again, and the Saints went on to win. And afterwards, a, a uh, reporter was able to catch a quick interview with Drew Brees. I want to encourage you to go home and Google it because... He is so full of emotion and so excited and so grateful. She asked him, okay, what's running through your mind and your heart at this special occasion? And he just starts saying, you know, it's so hard. So many people were a part of this moment and so many people had a hand in it. But the two people that were most important to me and the most responsible for my football career are up in heaven my mom, and my grandfather. There were a lot of people that I wanted to prove right tonight and make proud of me, but none more so than them. I know that they're looking down on me right now and smiling over me and my children. And then he goes on to thank pretty much everybody. He said, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that I get to play this game that I love. I'm so grateful that I get to play with these wonderful teammates and, and this wonderful New, New Orleans Saints organization and in this wonderful city and with this wonderful fan base. And he kind of stopped and he said, you know, I'll probably be able to reflect on it more when my career is over, but right now I feel like I have more work to be done. And the reporter asked him, all right, what did you say to your kids right after you broke the record? And he said, well, I told them the same thing I tell them every night when they go to bed, that they can achieve anything if they're willing to work hard. Nothing's given in life. Everything's earned. And God has created us for great things. I tell them that every night. God has created us for great things. We weren't meant to be bystanders. What are the ways that you can give your time and your effort to make a difference in this world? And third, are we willing to give our lives? When the widow gave the last bit of her food, she gave away all of her hope in that moment. She fully expected that she and her son were going to starve. And yet, God came to deliver her not only from physical starvation, but spiritual starvation. She would go on to see God's work in incredible ways. Now, her story goes to the end of the chapter. We didn't read it all, but after the drought is over, it seems that her son became quite ill, so sick that he died from the illness. And the widow called out to Elijah. He was living in the top portion of her house, and he came running down, and he cried out to God on behalf of this boy. And he started praying fervently over him. And then the boy started to breathe again, and he was revived. Now, Elijah scooped up her son and brought it back, brought him back to his mother. 
because she was willing to lay down her own life for the sake of someone else, Elijah was there to restore the life of her son. And while Jezebel was preaching about Baal, the god of war and death and violence in Israel, this widow woman would go on to proclaim the message of the living God there in Sidon. She told Elijah, now I know for certain that you are a man of God and that the word of God is true. What does it mean for us to lay down our lives for someone else, to give our lives? Well, most of us will never be asked to put our lives in jeopardy, but every single day we face numerous opportunities of ways that we can put the needs of others before our own. Every single day, we can think of things that bring about comfort for somebody else. Are we willing to give up a seat in a waiting room? Are we willing to cheer for the success of someone else? Are we willing to care for the needs of a stranger? Are we willing to put the needs of others before our own? When we went to the National Holocaust Museum, one of the stories that intrigued me was the story of two individuals who put the needs of Jews in Poland before their own lives. In 1939, Germany invaded the western edge of Poland, and at the same time, their ally at that moment, uh, the Soviet Union, invaded from the east. And that put all of the Jews in Poland in significant jeopardy. And so right after the invasion, about 10,000 Polish Jews escaped into Lithuania, which was neutral at that time. But by July 1940, Lithuania had been invaded by the Soviets. And so once again, their lives were in peril. A few of the Polish Jews went to the Dutch consulate office and asked if they could obtain visas to go to one of the Dutch Caribbean islands. And the man in that position was new to his post. His name was Jan Zwartendijk, and he called his supervisor, who said, there is no visa needed for Curacao. And that's because... The entry is granted upon arrival by the governor, and he usually doesn't give anyone entry. But Zwartendijk only put the first half of that statement in their passports. No visa is required for Curacao. And so they took that statement, and they knew that they needed to travel through Japan, and so they needed transit visas from, Jap- uh, Jap- uh, from Japan. They went to the Japanese consulate there in Lithuania, and they met a man by the name of Shayun Sugahara. Now, they asked him for this visa, and so he telegraphed his superiors, who said no. And he telegraphed other authorities, anybody who could help him, and everyone said emphatically, you cannot offer these people a visa. And so he went home to talk to his wife. They had three small children, and they knew that they stood to lose everything if he were to disobey those orders. And yet they couldn't deny the needs and the lives of the people around them. 
And so he began writing transit visas as fast as he could. For 29 straight days, he wrote uh, transit visas. Now, they wouldn't realize it at the time, but there was only a small window of opportunity because the Soviets had invaded Lithuania in July of 1940, and on August 3rd, they shut down the Dutch consulate, and Zwartendijk was expelled from the country. Sugihara was able to stay just a couple weeks longer, and he was riding these visas till the last moment. In fact, people saw him signing his name and filling out paperwork as he's getting on the train to be forced out of the country. These two men put their lives on the line for the sake of others. And because of their willingness to do that, almost 3,000 Polish Jews were saved. And all of the members of the Mir Yeshiva. The Mir Yeshiva was a, an Orthodox Jewish religious school, and it was founded in the Lithuanian town of Mir. And as soon as the invasion happened, all of the students and faculty went to the Dutch consulate, and he wrote in their passports, no passport necessary for Curacao. And then they went to Sugihara, and he offered, he issued them transit visas to Japan, which allowed them to board the Trans-Siberian Railway and cross the Soviet Union until they were able to board a boat for Japan. That same yeshiva was the only one in all of Europe to survive the Holocaust intact. And now it has given rise to three prominent yeshivas, two in Brooklyn and one in Jerusalem. And the Jewish and the Jerusalem Mir Yeshiva is the largest of its kind in the world, thanks in large part to two men who were willing to put the lives of others before their own. These two men never met each other, and the people they were helping were largely strangers to them, but they knew they were called to do the right thing. Today, I want to ask you to do to ask yourself three questions. Sometime today, maybe you're discussing it at lunch or dinner, maybe you're reflecting on these questions later today, but ask yourself these three questions. First, how do I give my money? Second, how do I give my time? And third, how do I give my life to make a difference? Because what you do matters. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.